Hi everyone, Griffin Marie here and welcome to the UBS In The Now podcast channel. The first 100 days of the Biden administration have come and gone, so today my special guests will offer their reflections on the early days of the administration, along with providing outlooks for what the policy path forward might consist of. So joining me on the podcast today, glad to welcome Shane Lieberman, Federal Affairs Manager with the UBS U.S. Office of Public Policy, as well as Frank Kelly, Head of Government Affairs with DWS. So Shane and Frank, great to be with you both and looking forward to what should be an insightful and productive conversation. Conversation. Great to be here. Thank you. Well, gentlemen, the first 100 days of a presidential administration traditionally offers the American people and the world with a sense of direction for how the balance of the term might progress. And broadly speaking here, what are your reflections and takeaways of the Biden administration thus far? Shane, do you want to take that? Because for me, I don't even know what day it is because of COVID. So I'm going to let you I'll let you qualify this and start it out. Sure. Sounds good. Uh, if you're wondering, Frank, I think the day of the week is uh, May. That was that was a joke. Um, what? So, so here we are. You know, the Biden administration absolutely, you know, is a different uh, tone and pace than the Trump administration. I think what you've seen is the Biden administration tried to really kind of keep its head low and uh, really work, you know, behind the scenes towards their policy goals versus, you know, the Trump administration, which would um, like to fight uh, daily uh, in the press and the media on their uh, agenda. So, you know, it's a very different tone that uh, I think in the minds of the Biden administration, their hope is that it brings some um, respect back to the government uh, and you know, faith in the government working versus just, you know, jousting every single day. You know, uh, obviously the big win for the Biden administration right now is COVID and COVID relief, uh, passing that significant COVID relief uh, bill earlier this year, getting the vaccine out, start, starting to see signs of the economy recognizing the transition from you know, uh, COVID era to hopefully the post-COVID area. And they're really, you know, uh, focusing on that uh, and then trying to transition to what's next now. So that's where we're in that transition phase right now. I feel like where they're trying to move beyond, you know, the, the, the COVID daily life cycle, as, you know, Frank, you know, jokingly inferred, you know, some of us, uh, you know, it takes a toll on us, you know, not just health wise, but, you know, really taking over our lives in uh, various ways. Uh, so I think that's kind of where we're at with the Biden administration. Yeah, I'll, I'll just jump in and say I, I, I completely agree with Shane. I mean, it's I, I've been I've been telling our guys internally and some, and some of our clients that in many ways, it's almost like we were at a heavy metal concert for the last four years and we just got home. We're all kind of a little bit, a little bit deaf, or very deaf, because it was just constant something going on. Uh, and the pyrotechnic show was fantastic, so our eyes are a little dazzled. And then you get Joe Biden coming in, who has, I think, very smartly, and I think it's also his nature. He's not a screamer. He's not a he's not a combative guy by nature, though he's he's a tough guy. And it's much quieter. 
right? It is, and to Shane, I think, makes a very important point here is he wants to reinstill trust in government, something that is, is from a, a Washington perspective, um, I don't think you can discount at all the gravity of what happened January 6th and the impact that has had uh, on members of Congress, uh, people who serve in government. I mean, that's, that, that, is, that is one of the most horrific things that has happened to people. I'm not going to compare it to 9-11 because 9-11 unto itself was just a, a horror. But it's, to many of these people, the single worst thing that they have seen or personally experienced since 9-11. And it's, it, and I think it's, it shook up a lot of people out there in, in America. What, what is going on here? So I think it's, there's a, it is, let's keep it calmer. Let's keep it quieter. It's a soft piano concerto. It is not a heavy metal concert anymore. And I think that for the markets also leads to questions about why I think the markets miss things these days because they're so used to being a blaring headline. It's now more commonly discussed, but that doesn't mean big things aren't happening. Absolutely, guys. Definitely a shift in tone in Washington since uh, the Biden administration has come into office. But And Frank, I'm glad you raised that last point here. But taking look, looking forward a bit, what in your view will be the top focuses and priorities of the Biden administration accounting namely for legislative or executive actions that might have direct implications for markets in the economy? Why don't I jump in and, and on that one very quickly and say, I mean, clearly Shane has, has mentioned there's some big things coming. It's the infrastructure package, which, you know, at, as we're recording this, it'll be interesting to see if we get bipartisanship or not. And where we'll, we'll Republicans come out on this, uh, we're expecting imminently, I think today or tomorrow, they're going to co- have a counter to the president. Will Republicans go along with any tax increases? I think the answer is no, no way, no how. So can you get an infrastructure package done through Congress that is sort of stripped down to just infrastructure with, with just increasing debt? Um, or do you go the reconciliation uh, method? But I think that's sort of top of mind now. But what does Biden do going forward? I think if you just my laundry list here is, you know, he, you, you look at the second big package, the one point eight trillion dollar package, which they referred to often on as human infrastructure where that's where the personal tax increases look like they'll be included. I think the other thing is the market needs to carefully pay attention to what happens in June because we're expecting the Supreme Court to hand down their decision then um, in, in the coming next several weeks on, on Obamacare. This was the, the big case that they heard November 10th that rattled the people were so worried about Amy, Amy Barrett being confirmed and would she effectively come on and be the eviscerating vote to Obamacare as we knew it. It's a long story, but I don't think that's going to happen. Interestingly enough, it was Brett Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh, who seemed to be more the most defensive of the Obamacare system at the moment. But that decision is going to come down, and then that's a predicate for, okay, this is where we are now. What the Supreme Court says is legal is not. I think we're going to have a major, uh, major health care battle probably in the fall. Um, and then there's a host of foreign policy issues, trade issues here, uh, that is, you know, and China and certainly uh, Iran being the first one here on the nuclear accord. And I think it could be interesting. You could see some sort of return to a deal by midsummer. And the big beneficiary out of that, believe it or not, is not just the world that you would have uh, a nuclear weapon free Iran, but it'll be China because they'll be playing a critical 
maybe the most important role getting Iran to agree to this? And how does that play out in U.S.-China trade? Because the president's going to have to deal with that. So um, it's going to be a pretty crowded year from my perspective. But I don't know. Shane, your thoughts? No, you mentioned a lot of critical uh, items that will be really relevant this year. And, you know, just to add on to that, I think you're right. You know, we're going to be following this infrastructure and tax increase bill. And that's probably what's going to consume most of us um, than the next few weeks and months. But you're right. You have all these other issues um, that are uh, can also have an impact on the financial markets and the economy. Um, I think you're seeing a lot of concern from uh, Republicans about the infrastructure package and the human infrastructure package that Frank mentioned. The, from the perspective of all this spending could overheat the economy, and we, we have to think about the I-word, inflation, and how that impacts uh, the financial markets and the economy. So, you know, inflation could be a big concern this summer. And then uh, the debt ceiling. The debt ceiling is set to expire uh, at the end of July. Now, usually uh, the Treasury Department is able to use extraordinary measures, which gives them a couple hundred billion dollars worth of breathing room. And, you know, in under normal circumstances, that can get you, you know, uh, many months, not several months, many months of time to negotiate a deal, how to increase the debt ceiling. But uh, knowing everything that's going on and how much money is going out the door for COVID relief and uh, other spending initiatives that are going on, you know, that period could be really condensed and uh, could cause some, you know, uh, heat in the summer and concern about the debt ceiling, you know, and, you know, the posture in D.C. typically is that we shouldn't mess with debt ceiling. That's that's um, that's more than a third rail here. But you're seeing um, dividing lines between Republicans and Democrats right now on the issue that could, um, you know, cause some friction along the way to increasing the debt ceiling. So I think the debt ceiling will be increased, but it just may not be as smooth, which will then, you know, cause some turbulence uh, potentially along the way. Um, I think Frank is absolutely right to mention health care. Um, but, you know, I, I think we have to also think about what Frank was talking about in uh, foreign affairs. Um, absolutely agree about uh, China and Iran. I'm throwing Russia for good measure. And, uh, and of course, you got to keep an eye on North Korea. North Korea is kind of like that um, ex who doesn't like it when you don't pay attention to them. So when, you know, we're, we're keeping our eye on China and talking about the Iran nuclear deal, you know, North Korea may start uh, throwing mis- missiles into the uh, sea, you know, to try and get attention. Um, and that is obviously disruptive, um, especially when you consider, you know, the proximity of South Korea, chi- uh, not only China, but Japan, um, which are important markets uh, to the greater global market. So, you know, the the foreign affairs aspect is sometimes the least predictable, but um, can be really impactful. So, you know, we always have to be thinking that um, we should expect turbulence uh, in, that, in regards to that as the, as the summer and the year plays out here. Yeah, definitely, Shane. Uh, a lot to think about with major implications for markets and the economy. But turning stateside here and turning to domestic politics, it's never too early to consider the next 
election cycle and many are already preparing for and looking ahead to the 2022 midterms. Granted, there is some runway ahead of us, but how are both sides of the aisle positioning themselves to either gain or maintain congressional control? Yeah, Frank, I'll take that one first and hand it over to you if you don't mind. You know, both sides yeah, are really hard at work. You know, uh, it starts with uh, aggressive fundraising. Uh, mm-hmm. The next phase is recruiting of candidates, trying to get uh, sitting members of the House and Senate to run for re-election. Um, so there's all this going on, you know, behind the scenes. Uh, you, we just have finish, are finishing the census, which will lead to redistricting for the 435 House seats, uh, where the, the, the lines will be redrawn over the course of the next year or so. Um, and they'll be jockeying to, you know, um, push some members out uh, or make their district almost unwinnable. Um, and there's a lot of effort on both sides behind that, that uh, redistricting process. Uh, you see Republicans getting excited that redistricting could uh, bring them into the majority in the House. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that's possible. But, you know, we don't know that yet because we have to see how uh, the lines are redrawn. You know, Republicans kind of start with a, a small advantage in the sense that um, Texas Florida are gaining seats, and California and New York and Illinois are losing seats. So, you know, off the top of your mind, you you think uh, positive for Republicans, uh, not so good for Democrats. But, you know, uh, keep in mind that Democrats control those three states I just mentioned and can, you know, easily rub out Republicans there. So it it does cut both ways. You know, in the Senate, um, you have approximately one-third of the Senate up for re-election, just looking quickly at the map of where the elections are, it looks po- positive for Democrats, you know, just based on the map, because you're looking at uh, more seats being in play for uh, Republicans uh, or stay up for re-election for Republicans than Democrats. So the simple math there is that Democrats have the advantage. But uh, when you start looking at it, it's, it's a jump ball at this point. Um, because Republicans have pick up opportunities in states like New Hampshire and Nevada, while Democrats are uh, excited about potentially picking up states like uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, so this this will be a, uh, a one to watch, obviously, in the, over the next eighteen months. But you know, uh, they're they're both sides are getting ready uh, for 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 the uh, election and are are going full steam ahead. Shane has covered this perfectly. Uh, I don't have anything to add substantively to this other than I just point out this is in a year like this with and and, and, uh, pointing out particularly the census. This is such a big money thing, right? Because this is everybody moves. Everybody shifts. It's new polling that needs to be done. We need to do new recruiting, new fundraising. And it really creates something, in my experience, in, in uh, midterm elections uh, or even just normal every four-year elections, when the census comes into play here, it really is a wild card. And a lot of people will, you know, I think it does look like Republicans will probably pick up a couple of seats, but then the lawsuits kick in and you never know what happens. So it really, it, there's an element of unpredictability here uh, that, that, that plays into this, which I think will make these midterms quite exciting. Absolutely. Now, some headline-grabbing initiatives proposed as of late, including expansion of the Supreme Court bench, elimination of the filibuster, uh, reparations, and granting statehood to Washington, D.C. Do you guys have a take on the likelihood of any of these proposals coming to fruition? 
I think they're all going to be debated. I mean, they're going to be rigorously debated. You have the expansion of the Supreme Court um, and, and uh, President Biden putting together this commission of a pretty large and distinguished crowd of uh, um, uh, professors, uh, law professors studying it. I think what will be interesting about this is not so much the expansion of the Supreme Court, but do we expand the, just the normal federal court? When you look at the boundary lines of where the First Circuit, Second Circuit, you look at all of a sudden the Ninth Circuit, which I think is everything from Denver West, can you break that up? And if you break that up, then are you going to create a whole new a massive slot of federal uh, federal judges, appellate judges, et cetera? That could, be, that could be one of the outcomes of this. So I think that's one thing to watch. I don't think the D.C. statehood thing is going to happen. It was very interesting to see Senator Joe Manchin say no. And Shane, I'm curious what you think. I don't live in D.C. I live just outside of D.C. I think there's a lot of a lot of people aren't uh, outside of D.C. too excited about the idea. Everybody inside D.C. is very excited about the idea. Hmm. I just don't see that happening. But Shane, um, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, no, it's a great point, Frank. And I, you know, living a half mile over the line now, I used to live in D.C. Uh, I think that's generally right. The people outside of D.C. that are passionate about it are those who are, you know, hardcore politicos who think uh, and believe that it's it's a great opportunity to, you know, um, have, uh, secure a Democrat majority in the Senate uh, that would, in their minds, hopefully last for years to come. But the way I kind of look at a lot of these issues and then not moving forward is, a play on one of the issues that uh, Griffin mentioned, which is the elimination of the filibuster. I don't think the filibuster is going to be eliminated. But what you see Democrats trying to do with all these issues is, is kind of build a case of why the filibuster should be eliminated. Because they're still trying to convince Joe Manchin, who uh, Frank just mentioned, but also uh, Democrats that are Kirsten Sinema. So if they can show repeatedly uh, that, you know, they're, um, initiatives are being blocked by Republicans. They're hoping they can not only publicly build support for the elimination of the filibuster, but build that support internally. Um, and, you know, honestly, I think they may make a good case, you know, for, for that to, in, in the sense of they get their base excited and they get their base out to vote and support, you know, all the uh, Democrats that supported these initiatives. But at the end of the day, I, I don't see Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema really moving off their position right. on the elimination of the filibuster, which then means, you know, they won't be able to move forward on these other issues. So uh, I think it's a little bit of a show trial to, you know, uh, try and uh, get themselves amped up. But really, they're getting up uh, their their base voters amped up for 2022. Well, guys, appreciate the commentary on those controversial topics there. But before we conclude today, do you have any final thoughts or takeaways to share with our advisors, perhaps in terms of how foreign and domestic policy should be factored into allocation decision making? Sure, I'll go first, Frank, if you don't mind. Um, you know, I think, you know, the, what's staring at us in the face right now is this uh, potential infrastructure package. Um, and what we need to remember is that if it's not bipartisan, then Democrats intend to go uh, at it alone with um, uh, pair and pairing it with tax increases. Now, uh, Frank mentioned a separate, you know, families uh, infrastructure plan that carried the individual taxes. I think what you'll see more likely happen is, you know, that the physical hard infrastructure plan and that 
social infrastructure plan kind of merge into one bill. Now, 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 not all of it will will be in that final bill, but components of it, and the most important components would be the taxes. Um, so we have to be of the mind that uh, there's chance uh, that you know taxes could go up not only in corporations but individuals this year. And I think maybe the one that I would flag for today is cap gains. Um, because cap gains is a little different than, you know, uh, increase to the corporate rate or, or individual income tax rates, because those will more likely than not be prospective to the start of 2022 if they were passed in the law. Cap gains is a little bit different because if you say that you're going to increase cap gains the start of next year, you've given Americans months heads up to try and realize gains at a lower rate. So I think they that Democrats would time stamp uh, such an increase to either when the bill is introduced or, or possibly when it's signed into law. So we have to be of the mind that there's a chance that theoretically cap gains could go up um, and go up, you know, as of, you know, next month or so. Um, so, you know, that doesn't mean, you know, you should go out today and, and, sell something, you know, so to ensure that you realize it at a lower rate. But it's something I think you have to have a conversation with your, you know, your financial advisor, your your kind of team, if you will, about, you know, taking a look at your investments and thinking about does that impact anything that we're thinking of or or is or is everything we're holding, you know, a long term play and that really shouldn't impact the thinking. So you know, I think that's what I would flag today, and you know, maybe maybe uh, um, Frank has some other thoughts there, or other other things that I, you know, uh, he thinks maybe top of the list as well. Well, uh, aside from scribbling everything you just uh, said uh, down, and I will be stealing it as my own content later, Shane. Uh, oftentimes, I do whenever I hear you speak. Um, I think you're spot on on all of that. The only other thing that I would say is, and. Um, uh, and I'm not blowing smoke at Shane and, and, the, and the team here, uh, but look, I think it's going to be a wild period here potentially over the next four or five months as we move forward on um, uh, this infrastructure package. And whatever President Biden and Democrats decide to do on this $1.8 trillion package of human infrastructure or the American Family Act or whatever they're calling it, there's different names seem to be floating around, on the individual side, because that's what we're chatting about now. That's what we're debating about now. But there's no legislative text yet, right? So Congress has to get down to brass tacks and actually write the legislation. And it's always there. It is always there that the devil's in the details. And I would also brace for, and this is why Shane is going to be so critical to you guys uh, during this period, there's always that surprise, right? It's, I'll give you an example. There is chatter out there, uh, whether I can't give, I couldn't give odds to it, but you've got certain uh, senators like uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders who want to eliminate student debt, which I think is like $1.7 trillion. And to offset that, they're proposing a financial transaction tax. Hmm. Well, what happens if they try and attach this to any of these two big, the infrastructure bill, the American Family Act, and they're using the reconciliation method where it's a 51 vote majority. Wow, where did that come from? We weren't discussing that. Or what happens to carried interest? Or what happened, right? There's always the sucker punch. There's always the surprise in these things that aren't necessarily sort of mapped out in sort of the pre-dance that we're going through. 
or if I'm, I'm, I live by analogies because I'm so bad at numbers, I would argue in some ways it's like we're, we've all sitting down and reading War and Peace and we're just finishing the introductory chapter. There's still a lot to come here. And thanks to Shane and the team, we can help in any way. There's going to be surprises and, and they, they will impact portfolios. So we've got to watch this process very carefully. Well, Frank and Shane, very insightful conversation and appreciate all of the ground that you covered with us. Uh, there is a lot to certainly monitor, and I look forward to seeing how some of these proposals materialize and perhaps we can all regroup down the pike a bit for a follow-up conversation. Though, thank you again for joining our listeners and clients today. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. Again, we have been joined by Shane Lieberman, Federal Affairs Manager with the UBS U.S. Office of Public Policy, as well as Frank Kelly, Head of Government Affairs with DWS. The UBS In The Now podcast channel is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. So from UBS Studios, I'm Griffin Marie, and thank you for joining us. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review the PDF document at UBS.com forward slash relationship summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA SIPC.